Support for WVIK comes from Kathleen Collins at the Dragonfly in Bettendorf. Using both conventional and alternative counseling methods for empowerment to help create change for individuals and couples. More information is at KathleenCollinsCounseling.com. You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR. Welcome back to the Heartland Politics Show and Podcast, which is aired on and distributed by WVIK Quad Cities NPR. WVIK is the flagship public radio station in the Quad Cities region of Northwestern Illinois and Eastern Iowa. I'm your host, Robin Johnson, and are you tired of listening to our hyper-partisan political squabbles and want to hear instead a common-sense voice from the middle? Someone who actually served in Congress and broke party lines on some key issues? Well, my guest today is just who you're looking for. He's Scott Klug, a former congressman from Wisconsin, and he co-hosts a podcast called Lost in the Middle, America's Political Orphans. Very interesting podcast. I I recommend it. There are times I feel like an orphan as well, Scott, and I suspect many of our audience do as well. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Glad to be here. I've got uh, lots of Iowa connections. So my father-in-law is from um, close to uh, Dyersville, I've got my son went to Iowa. My daughter-in-law went to Iowa State. Uh, so that's sort of a harsher fight than Republican Democratic politics these days. And I know the Quad Cities well, so thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Uh, I, I'm th- there are still people out there, and I and most of the people I talk to feel like they're in the middle, and they feel like our politics has gone off the rails here. But before we get into talking a little bit more, talk about your election, which is very interesting in and of itself, uh, as a Republican being elected in a district with a big state university. Yeah, I was so I was elected in an upset election in 1990. I beat a Democratic congressman who'd been in office for 32 years. I represented Madison and Dane County, which today is whatever the deepest shade of blue is in your crayon box is what Madison is today. But back then, one of the demographic trends I saw was that Dane County, where Madison sits, was growing very quickly, and suburban voters were not traditional anti-war Democrats. I mean, I can remember going to, uh, when I worked as a reporter in Madison, to a speech by Jerry Brown when he decided to run in a presidential primary. And there were guys in the crowd, literally, with tie-dye shirts on. And these weren't like when tie-dye shirts became hip again. These were like tie-dye shirts that had been buried there forever. So they were not particularly receptive, but if you went out to the suburbs, people were, excuse me, <laughs> like suburban voters everywhere, focused on taxes and kids and schools and, you know, less federal government rather than more federal government and keep your hand out of my wallet. So I, I'm very uh, clearly self-identify as a member, a member of the libertarian wing of the Republican Party. Um, and those are my politics. And I sort of look up today, like most of your listeners, and go, what the hell? I mean, the idea for this podcast actually started around the first Kevin McCarthy fiasco when people stopped me literally in the grocery store aisle, it seemed to be the cereal aisle of a grocery store in line in a movie theater, uh, waiting for a cup of coffee. And they said, I don't get this. You know, Republicans are running around the country banning middle school books 
and the Democrats are trying to take the stove out of my kitchen. It's like, who elected these clowns? And so that was really the birth of what we think is the political middle. And I think what the issues we talk about and the way we talk about them is really where most of the country still is. I was intrigued in doing a little research about you that you you went out and talked to voters uh, in, in Winnebago County, some real voters in a, in a, uh, a county that uh, we're familiar with here. Uh, Winnebago County, of course, in Illinois is home of Rockford. It's an area very similar to ours, uh, industrial manufacturing past, some agriculture. Um, why did you pick there, uh, Scott, and what, what were people saying? I'm very curious to hear this. Yeah, so we we picked Winnebago County. It's it's a little understood and I think very unappreciated swing county. In seven of the last eight presidential elections, it picked the winner, the exception being 2016 when Hillary Clinton won it by 71 votes. So that'll tell you about as close as it was. And so we wanted to find a swing county somewhere in the United States to focus on, to sort of look at this lost political middle. And we figured, you know, it's 75 miles down the road for me. It's an easy place to get to. And we talked to a political scientist who said it's interesting. I mean, everybody knows Chicago politics, right? I mean, they're Democratic, legendary. The, the If there's a place where there was voting fraud, it may have been in the 1960 presidential election. That's one a lot of historians would look at seriously. And then if you look at downstate Illinois, I meant Southern Illinois is really more Kentucky than it's Illinois. In fact, the last Republican gubernatorial candidate, people asked where he was from because he had such a thick Southern accent. And then if you look at Winnebago County, it's had this crazy reputation for years. And um, one of the political scientists in Rockford actually said, look, you know, Chicago, you know, downstate Illinois, we're Switzerland. We're not like either of them. We sort of do our own thing. And people there told us this, you know, sort of two major themes, right? The politics of the last year have cost families countless fights at Thanksgiving dinner and at Christmas. People storming out of the room, not talking to sisters or brothers or close friends for literally a year or two at a time. And that's not normal in American politics. We can always disagree, but there's always been a sense of, in Congress when I was there, you'd go out and get a beer afterwards, literally, I meant in many cases. And then the other thing we, we saw was just the frustration with the extreme rhetoric in the middle, the tone of the elections, the tone of campaigns, it's not that I disagree with you. It's that I hate you. And so this tribal thing, I think, is destroying American politics. And again, if we go you know, five miles from your house to the closest diner nearby, that's not how people act and think anymore. And um, and so we're just trying to, to listen to that side of the country to tell fellow political orphans, you know, it's almost half of the country's that way. There's a famous Brookings study where they asked 2,000 people, do you want a Democratic Party to the left of the Democrats, a Republican Party to the right of the Republicans, leave things alone, or split the middle? And the answer was 44% wanted people to split the middle. And they don't talk about compromise. They talk about collaboration, the idea that you get a little and I get a little, and at the end of the day, you get a deal. And as we're talking, tell me that most people who listen to this show aren't pounding their heads on the table with the immigration deal. I mean, it's what George W. Bush said was his biggest regret, and that was 20 years ago, and still no deal. I'm curious your thoughts here. And again, I want to go back to when you served, which was in the 1990s. Here's a couple of votes Scott took, which are very admirable, regardless of your positions on these issues. Just think about this. He's a Republican from uh, a university town. Um, he voted to means test Social Security, which would be political death most of the time. That's a more conservative position, but he also supported an assault weapons ban, which is a more progressive position. 
boy, wouldn't it be nice to have people that look at issues and vote based on that instead of party? A couple more uh, data items here for you, just to get an idea of, of our guest, Scott Klug. The uh, American uh, Conservative Union, a far-left group, rated him 43 on a scale of 1 to 100. The Americans for Democratic Action, a far-left group, rated him 45. Uh, the FLCIO, 44. The Chamber of Commerce, 75. And, and again, most ratings now are either like uh, between 0 and 10 and 90 and 100. Um, and if you want a reference point, people in the Quad Cities a little older would, would think of immediately Jim Leach on the Iowa side and Tom Railsback on the uh, on the Illinois side. My question is this, after all that, but I just wanted to familiarize my listeners with you a little bit more. How did we get to this point? That was in the 90s. We're now in 2024. What was it? There's a lot of theories on how our, our politics became so hyper-partisan. What if, I'm sure you've given up some thought. What do you think? I think there's sort of two things that um, are, are at the heart of it. When I got elected in 90, we were at the cusp of doing redistricting in Wisconsin. Okay, so you do the census, two years later, you redraw the House seats. Um, and um, there were five Republicans and four Democrats. So it meant that the Republicans actually had their own block of votes in how you get elected to committees. And in the Republican side, it was in something that sounds like it's out of a Marx Brothers movie like Duck Soup. It's the executive committee of the Committee on Committees. And and so uh, that was that was sort of the tone at that point. And so when I said I want to um, uh, be involved in trying to influence the redistricting, the other four Republicans were in such safe seats. They sort of said, have at it. Well, it turned out at that point, in order to figure out the redistricting maps in Wisconsin, and, the, and they tended to be drawn candidly by the Republicans and Democrats that were sort of protect the incumbent seats. Um, we actually had to hire somebody to write the computer program to do it, to try to do things because you have to try to keep counties and geographical areas and areas of interest um, in one place. Now today you can buy off the shelf software. And so redistricting has become so refined that the districts have become so partisan. I was just actually reading a thing today about ticket splitting that Larry Sabado put out, who's this respected election observer, basically saying that when you looked at ticket splitting in presidential years, there are less than 20 seats now that are the party of, you know, of one party that differs from the president who got elected. So in Dane County, if Joe Biden carries it, it's very rare that you'd have a Republican member. And in, you know, flip it the other way around, it'd be very hard in the Milwaukee suburbs to see that get carried with a Republican president and a Democratic congressman. So redistricting is really at the heart of this. The second thing is the media. And I'm a guy who spent um, 14 years in television working as a reporter in Seattle and Washington, D.C., and then back home in Wisconsin when we moved here when we had little kids. Um, and if you look today, um, and you look at cable news, cable news is losing people right and left. And the only people who tend to subscribe to cable news in a lot of cases are people who want news coverage and they want news coverage that agrees with them. And so you see MSNBC go down one rabbit hole and to the right, Fox goes down the other rabbit hole. And they're, they're like parallel universes. It's not only different parts of the country that, you know, as somebody once said, you know, we can all, uh, you're all welcome to your own opinion, but you're not welcome to your own set of facts. And if you listen to one station and turn to the other station, it's the same. And what's even worse, 
Then cable TV is the slow death of the American newspaper because nobody gets it anymore. I mean, if, if you follow the news at all, you've seen massive layoffs at the Washington Post and the LA Times just in the last couple of weeks, which then means a lot of people get their news from social media and the internet. And if it's crazy on Fox and MSNBC, it's really crazy on the internet. So the problem is, I think you've got these two harsh echo chambers, which reinforce this tribalism. And then it makes people really reluctantly to break out of their own little cocoon wherever they are. And so you now see these lines that are drawn to favor of the incumbent, which means in most cases, incumbents get reelected. And sadly, the first thing you hear when you get elected for office, even when I got elected in 90, we're at a dinner at the Rotunda in the Capitol with the, the other members of my Republican class, and the Bob Michael, who is an old Illinois guy who was then the minority leader, said, Scott, you know what your first job is? And I sort of looked bewildered and said, no. And he said, get back here, get reelected next time. It's like, I, I haven't even been sworn in. I haven't taken one vote. And my first job is to get reelected. I was a term limit guy. I remain a term limit guy. I said I'd served over the 12 years. I think it's a window of public service. It's not a career. I think the longer you're there, the more you're sucked into thinking Washington's the real world. My wife and kids always lived in Madison. I went back and forth. So I actually quit after eight years rather than 12 because I'd seen how the movie ended. So, Did you think about higher office, Scott? I mean, that's the question I'll bet a lot of our listeners are wondering, gosh, how come this guy didn't run for governor or senator? Um, the answer is, at that time, I was in my mid-30s when I first got elected. Jim Nussel was another old buddy of mine who was in my class who used to represent the Dubuque area for years. Yeah. Um, and I just, the Senate to me felt like, I work at a large national law firm, right? It felt even back then like the lobby of our headquarters, Oriental rugs, a grandfather clock in the corner ticking. It was like, oh my God, no. And then the only other, I was probably more interested in governor only because um, it's an executive branch. And I think I'm much more wired for that than I was in the legislative side of things. But not for long, really. I felt like I'd sort of served my time and eight years was plenty. If I'd gone to West Point, you only have to do six. I figured after eight, I'd step out and give somebody else a chance. And the other thing, when you're in office like that, you're extraordinarily helpful to people back in your district and your state because you know how Washington works and you can help get things done. And people will go, oh, that means big corporations or labor unions. And 90% of the constituents I saw was, you know, some woman who flew out with the insurance agents and lived in Dodgeville. And she's the person who comes to Washington. And that's who I'm supposed to help. You're listening to Heartland Politics on WVIK, Quad Cities NPR. This is your host, Robin Johnson. And I'm very delighted today to have a really interesting conversation with former Congressman Scott Klube from Wisconsin. Scott represented a district that included the University of, of Wisconsin, a very progressive area, and he was a Republican and he got elected. Um, he's doing some interesting things, including uh, he hosts a, a podcast, which is uh, um, uh, called Lost in the Middle, America's Political Orphans, and I'd have to say I'm a fellow orphan. We've been talking about uh, just having a, a, a nice conversation here about a very serious topic, the political dysfunction in the United States. Scott described a little bit about his background and, and what's caused this problem. Uh, how are we going to get out of this? That's the next topic I want to address. What, what do you think? Can we? And if so, how do we do it? Yeah, so we, this is a lot of what we talk about in the podcast, which is actually storytelling podcast. It's not a conversation like we're having. Um, so if you're 
listeners are looking for it, the easiest place is lostmiddle.com. And that'll take you to all the episodes. We're seven episodes into a 14-part series that started in September and will end in September before we're in the final battle for the presidential election. Um, <laughs> I think there's a few things. <clears throat> I think, like all things in America, it depends largely on the people, and it depends on folks who are leaders and creative and entrepreneurial. So I'll tell you one quick little story. So one of our episodes is cause uh, we think America needs a big timeout and we found a mom to do it. So it's the story of Tammy Pfeiffer, who's a woman in Logan, Utah. She's got five kids in political order. She'll tell them it's a Republican, a Libertarian, a Democrat, a Democratic Socialist and an Independent. She uh, grew up basically running for the city council. Her kids delighted in putting yard signs up in their neighborhood. Politics was always fun. She eventually gets to have to be the education secretary for the state of Utah. And two Thanksgivings ago, it blew up. Uh, a couple of her kids are teachers. The other folks were mad about the mask mandates. And they literally did not meet for dinner as a family for over a year and a half, which is just soul crushing. So she got involved and said, there's got to be a way to fix this. So Tammy works with Utah State, a bunch of uh, researchers, uses focus groups, gets college kids to help her do this, and they develop a civility index. The idea is you can score candidates based on their rhetoric. If I look at you and say, you know what, Robin, you and I disagree, but here's where we can agree, that's old-fashioned politics. If I say you do this, you're going to destroy America and you should be embarrassed and you're a communist and a radical or whatever the hell you want. I want to call you just to alienate you as a person. So she develops this whole index and puts it on Facebook. And 72 hours later, she has to take it down because half the people say it's a Republican plot and the other half say it's the Democrats are to blame. But Tammy and her group called Unite are continuing to push these edges. And when you look for people who are working in sort of this space on trying to develop unity, break down these barriers, there's much more of a ground swell than I think a lot of people would think there would be. So I look at Tammy and say, those are the kind of people who have to do it. I look at people who are ticket splitters because uh, my mom and dad were ticket splitters. We were talking about this earlier. My mom was an Irish Catholic Democrat Son, a daughter of a railroad union railroad workers. My dad was a Republican, Lutheran, Chamber of Commerce, um, you know, Republican. And why we never talked about the Immaculate Conception at the dinner table or most about politics, my parents split tickets ferociously. My dad was a huge fan of Bill Proxmire, who was a Democrat for years in Wisconsin. My mom was a big fan of Ronald Reagan. When you look in the 2022 elections, ticket splitting happened all over the country. In the main election, for example, excuse me, Vermont, everybody says Vermont, people immediately go to Bernie Sanders. The most popular politician in Vermont is the Republican governor who got elected for his fourth term with 74% of the vote. Same thing happened in New Hampshire with Sununu and, and uh, the Democratic senator. In Georgia with uh, the popular Republican governor, Brian Kemp, and with Raphael Warnick. It happens in Wisconsin, but we're weird. I mean, ticket splitting is always in our DNA. So Republican senator, Democratic governor, same thing in Kansas, same thing in Nevada. So I look at that and that gives me great hope because it means people are consciously thinking about who they're voting for. And, and look, I'm a Republican. I meant my fundamental values are limited, small government and always will be. 
But that doesn't mean we've got a monopoly on truth or got a monopoly on the party. I didn't join, you know, a, a religion where I have to stick to the creed. I have the right to pick what I want and what I don't want. And so I look at that ticket splitting and sort of goes, yeah, there's a lot of people still like that. It won't happen in much in presidential years, but it could literally be the difference between who carries battleground states. If you look at Mike Bloomberg, which is a great story, Mike Bloomberg got elected in the New York mayor's race the first time around by 120,000 votes of people who self-identified as independents. In, in uh, Nevada today, independents are the single largest voting registration, more than the Republicans and Democrats combined. And people under the age of 30 will not affiliate with a political party, just national trends. So the answer is, I see a lot of sort of bright stars on the horizon. I don't think it's going to happen until we get through this next election, because I can't imagine but three of your listeners are excited about a Trump-Biden rematch. I mean, nobody is. In a country of 300 million people, how in the hell did we get here? But I think after that, maybe the fever blister breaks and things start to get a little bit of a return to normal. And I, and I you know, encourage your listeners to consider about who they're voting for, not just the label next to their name. We got about five minutes left. I want to conclude with one topic that a lot of people ask me. Uh, as you know, Scott, I'm sure I know you've read this. A lot of people are aware of it. People are just not looking forward to this choice in November. The polls show it. Uh, they wish we had different choices, but it looks like that's what we're going to have. And the next question I get is, why can't we have a third party effort? And I know you. This is a topic of one of your recent podcasts. Why don't we have a viable third party? Or is this the year that it might break through? Well. I think it's going to break through. I don't think it's going to happen now. I think it'll happen maybe eight years from now, because as the American institutions are all under a lot of stress, I think the two major political parties are in a lot of stress. And in those kind of situations, as you know, because you're a political science and historian, political parties fall apart and new parties emerge from it. The Republican Party started as a reform movement in you know the mid 1800s. Um, so there's there's two there's a couple of reasons. One is that, <laughs> as one of my guests described it, if if um, Target and Walmart urged merge, the Justice Department would do an investigation. In politics, it, there is no such thing as antitrust. People think the Presidential Election Commission is in some stately building in Washington D.C. run by the federal government. It's run by the Republicans and the Democrats. It's a reason no third party candidate has been on the stage since Ross Perot in 1992. And the, the parties have made it virtually impossible for third party candidates to get on ballots. It's the challenge right now that Kennedy's going through. And it's a challenge that no label's gonna is uh, is gonna have, just simply getting on the ballots. So here's two states that make it very difficult to get on the ballot, California and New York. In California, you need 155,000 valid signatures to get on the presidential ballot, which means you probably better get 240,000 to make sure the signatures are right. So those are two, what? Democratic states. The two other hardest states in the country to get on, Texas and Florida, wired by the Republicans in Texas and Florida. So the, the two uh, major parties have made it very difficult for third party candidates. The other thing, nobody's really ever had the right formula. So Teddy Roosevelt, arguably the most charismatic president in U.S. history and my personal hero, um, only managed to win um, four states. And at the end of the day, he really clobbered McKinley. And, and at the end of the day, that's how Wilson got reelected. The next big 
presidential run as an independent that serious was George Wallace, who essentially won six battleground states all in the Southeast, came close in another two, but that he really didn't play it. There was some sense that Wallace really wanted to be a spoiler so he could get it in the House and get somebody else on the Democratic ballot. And then the last one's Perot. And so while, uh, you know, Roosevelt had charisma, uh, Wallace actually had great organization because he got on all 50 ballots. Um, you know, Perot was the one who sort of married those two things and actually had um, a grassroots movement because early on in this race, uh, if, if folks who are listening are old enough to remember, Perot hadn't done anything. And he said, if people want me to run, they got to get me on the ballot in their states. And they literally had an army of grassroots voters. But what killed Perot, which is what I think at the end of the day is really going to kill any of these sort of fringe third party candidates who are out there, is people go to the polls. And they sort of pause and say, is this a wasted vote? And you see Perot's numbers tumble down from 28 to, I don't know what he finished with, maybe 16 or 17 percent. So the first thing is there are barriers set up specifically to make this difficult. And the second thing is we never found the right combination of somebody running for president. Um, and, and honestly, I don't think a Joe Manchin, you know, Larry Hogan, your listeners are in the head going like, who the hell is Larry Hogan? I just don't see... You know, what? no labels runs essentially as a party without a platform and all those independents agree they're independents until they get in a room and they start fighting over what the platform is. Are we pro-choice? Are we pro-life? You know, a stronger border? No, we want a lot more people in the country. And so it's it's hard to do. But again, as I think the Republican and Democratic parties sort of fall apart. That you know, the battle's coming in the in the next presidential primary for the Democrats between the progressives and the more centrist wing of the of the Democratic Party. But here's my last comment. So when I was in office, you remember this, there were blue dogs uh, uh, that dominated the Democrats. And it's how yes. Bill Clinton got elected president because he ran as a centrist Democrat. Uh, the peak of the blue dogs was in uh, Obama's election in 2008. And there were actually uh, nearly 70 blue dogs. After the last election, the blue dogs met in the House of Representatives because uh, it traditionally was old white Southern males. And the blue dogs today are sort of scattered. In fact, their leadership are women, you know, probably the most powerful people are in New Hampshire, excuse me, in New York and in Hawaii. So they said, here's what we got to do. We got to change it to the common sense coalition because calling us blue dogs makes us sound old and white and Southern and racist. Okay. They couldn't agree and split. So now the 13 powerful blue dogs have one group with seven and the other group with six. One's the Blue Dogs, one's the Democratic Coalition. Not unlike uh, the moderate Republicans when I was in office, I used to belong to something called the Tuesday Group, which actually met on Wednesday, which will tell you how organized we were as a political party. But if you look at one of the reasons I think the politics are so tough in Washington these days is there's no moderate wing in either party. And that's so important because that moderate group is the oil. It's the place in the middle where you get things done. And where you saw the immigration deal, you know, this month, which is which fell apart at the end of the day because there weren't enough folks in the middle. And as to my first point about redistricting, if you're in office today, you fall asleep at night worrying about a primary challenge. You don't worry about a challenge in the mainstream election. And that's a sad comment. And hopefully the last three episodes we're going to do in this episode will in this podcast series, uh, uh, lostmiddle.com, we'll look at people um, 
who are talking about some kind of redistricting reform, final five, ranked voting. There's a million ideas out there. Now, I should also tell you and remind your listeners that I completely cover the access of evil, right? So I was a journalist for 12 years, followed by a politician for eight, and now a lobbyist for 15. So cynicism runs deep in my blood. And so I worry with a lot of these reform movements, you just don't create another problem. That's sort of the way it goes. But it can't be any worse than what we're doing right now. So um, I, I appreciate the invitation to be on your show today. It's a great conversation. Thank you very much. It, it sure was. And I, I we, we, we've got to cut it off here. But uh, I'd love to have you back sometime, Scott, after the year is up and, and uh, have another discussion on this. This is very important. Uh, former Congressman Scott Klug from Wisconsin has been my guest today. Um, if you're interested in hearing more from him, tune in to his uh, Lost in the Middle podcast, Lost in the Middle, America's Political Orphans. Uh, Scott Klug, thank you so much for being on Heartland Politics today. Well, I appreciate it very much, and maybe we'll talk in the summer as things get closer to the election. I hope so. Listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR.